Welcome to True Crime Israel, bringing you macabre tales from the Holy Land. This podcast includes adult themes and descriptions of violence and murder that may not be suitable for all audiences. Please use discretion. Truth will ultimately prevail where there is pains to bring it to light. George Washington A man sits in a car, waiting. A teenage couple nearby say goodbye and part ways. The boy gets on a bus while the girl waits at the bus stop. The man in the car drives up and stops next to the girl. A quick exchange of words ensues. Follow the bus when it arrives, the girl is heard saying. A few minutes pass. The girl is once again heard talking to the man in the car. She opens the door, gets into the car, and the car drives off. This, according to the only eyewitness, is what happened on the night of February 22, 1998, on a central road in the city of Jerusalem. This was also the last time the teenage girl, Noah Eyal, was seen alive. Noah Eyal was born in 1981. She was a friendly, intelligent, and pretty girl who spent most of her time as a teenager in the Israeli scouts, where she served as a guide to a group of young pupils. In her high school yearbook, she was described as an easygoing, optimistic, and lively girl who enjoyed listening to music, hanging out at the beach, spending time with her boyfriend, and just loved life in general. Friends remember her always sitting in the last row in the classroom so she could work on training kits for her scouts group, and yet always managed to get good grades. There was a kind of charm in her with her smile and dimples, her nose ring and her infectious laugh, say her friends Sarah and Nurit. She had a feisty personality, a lot of confidence and magnetism. No one could say no to her. In 1998, Noah, then 17, lived in Ramot, a large neighborhood in the northwestern part of Jerusalem. On the day of her disappearance, Noah and her boyfriend Eldad went to see the movie Braveheart at the Jerusalem Cinematheque at around 9 o'clock p.m. After the movie, Eldad walked her to the Davidka Square, a central square situated next to the Machne Yehuda Market. For those of you not familiar with the area, this is at the heart of Jerusalem, and both the square and the market are popular tourist attractions. However, At the time the couple arrived at the square, it was nearly midnight, and the streets were almost empty. Soon, Eldad's bus had arrived, and he said goodbye to Noah and got on. Noah remained standing at the bus stop, waiting for bus number 36 to take her home back to the remote neighborhood. She began walking back and forth, clearly agitated, 
perhaps worried that she had missed the last bus home. Shimon Stern, a local cab driver who stood nearby, noticed a frantic demeanor. It had caught his eye, even though he had been looking intently at a strange car for the past few minutes. The car, with darkened windows and stickers covering most of its rear window, seemed rather suspicious to Stern. There was something conspicuous and strange about the way it just stood there, Stern later recalled. He watched as Noah went over to the car, perhaps to ask something or because the driver called her. The driver, described as approximately 25 years old, unshaven and wearing a red or orange cap, began talking to her. At the end of a short conversation, Stern heard Noah tell the man, follow the bus when it arrives, which implied that the man asked for directions to Ramot. Noah went back to the bus station. A few minutes passed, and once again Noah was seen approaching the car and engaging in conversation with the driver. Stern, who was still suspicious about the car, thought about warning Noah. I thought about telling her something. I was afraid for someone hitchhiking in the middle of the night. But I said to myself, it's none of your business. Do not interfere. While he was wondering whether or not to say something, Noah opened the side door and got into the car. It drove off in the direction of Ramot. Stern, feeling uneasy, attempted to memorize the license plate number. A few minutes later, the bus arrived. The next day, February 23rd at 7.20 a.m., Nira Eyal, Noah's mother, went to the police station to report her daughter missing. Almost immediately, the police contacted the media, and Noah's photo appeared on the evening news broadcast, described as a missing teenager from Jerusalem. A short time after the broadcast, the police received a phone call. Stern had just watched the news and recognized the girl in the photo. He described what he saw the previous night, described the car as a white Ford Escort, and gave the police the license plate number he memorized. 3430785 Later, the official interview at the police station, Stern gave a different number. 3534485 In the meantime, the police, together with Noah's friends, had organized a few search parties. One of them, comprising of Noah's good friends, Sarah and Nurit, along with a couple of other friends and a volunteer from the Civil Guard, went looking for Noah in the remote forest next to the neighborhood. Darkness had fallen when the party began searching the forest in freezing cold weather. When they reached the top of one of the hills, the group studied the forest spread at their feet. In the distance, the lights of the remote neighborhood glittered. Through the dark, they noticed two cars nearby. One was a police patrol car waiting at an intersection, and the other stood on one of the forest paths with its lights on. They aimed their flashlights to reveal a white car, which immediately drove off towards the forest exit and disappeared from view. The volunteer reported what they saw on his radio, but the patrol car did not move either not receiving the call or not thinking it was important. 
Disappointed, the group turned to the path where the vehicle was last seen and continued their search. Sarah was walking slowly on the dirt path. In front of her was her friend, Nurit, with a small flashlight in her hand, barely lighting the road. Suddenly, Sarah felt a soft object had been trampled under the soles of her shoes. It was a different feeling than walking on the small stones they were treading on. She went a little further, but then changed her mind and turned back. With a trembling hand, she took Nurit's flashlight and shone on the ground. At the center of the beam was a dusty blue bra. It belongs to Noah, Nurit whispered in a choked voice. A paralyzing silence enveloped the forest. Later, Nurit recalled, I remembered the bra because I saw it a few days earlier when Noah came to my house to study for a math exam. I was in shock, and I didn't really grasp the meaning of what we had found. The volunteer asked us to slow down and look around. While Sarah, the volunteer, and the boys gathered around the bra, I acted like an automaton, moving a little way up the path as I moved the flashlight from left to right, left to right, once on the cliff to the left, and once towards a small wadi on the right. And then, to the right, I saw a pair of bare legs lying in a strange position and sticking out from between the rocks. Nareed dropped the flashlight and it chattered on the ground. Her screams were heard from a distance. Sarah ran to her, hugged her, and pulled her back, trying not to look at the body. The volunteer contacted the police on his radio, and Nurit's screams attracted two other search parties who were walking nearby. One of Noah's classmates stared at the body, refusing to believe it was her. Another friend approached the body, screamed once, and fainted. The police soon arrived. The examination of Noah's body revealed signs of severe violence. She was beaten, raped, sodomized, and her skull crushed with a blunt object. A DNA profile was obtained from semen collected from the body, but no match was found in the system. Other than the bra, none of Noah's clothes or belongings were located at the scene. In the following months after the murder, the Jerusalem police interviewed dozens of suspects, some of whom were arrested but none charged with the crime, and hundreds of potential eyewitnesses, but none of them could shed new light on Noah's disappearance or the identity of the culprit. It seemed that Stern was the only eyewitness to what had happened on that fateful night. Unfortunately, the license plate number he had provided did not exist. Nevertheless, the police considered him to be a reliable witness, and they searched everywhere for the elusive Ford Escort, as well as asking for the public's help in tracking down the car or its driver. As the years went by, five investigative teams were replaced, each team following up different lines of inquiry, using a wide range of investigative tools and advanced technological means. One team examined the possibility that the murder may have been carried out by terrorists due to the severe violence used. Another collected DNA samples of known sex offenders from around the country 
in hopes of finding a match to the sample obtained from Noah's body. Top criminologists from abroad were brought in to compose a psychological profile of the killer. The investigators produced NASA satellite images to locate movements in the area at the time of the incident. They rummaged through dozens of chop shops in hopes of finding at least a few small parts of the car, and they reconstructed the events of the night of the murder on television. Despite all of this, the killer was not identified, and eventually, the case went cold. It would be 16 long years before the police would catch a break in the case. It was 2014 when Jerusalem police investigators found a partial DNA match in the database to that found on Noah's body. This became possible due to a new technology made available to police, which enabled the use of familial DNA in attempting to identify unknown samples. In other words, when searching for a match in the database, the police could now look at DNA samples belonging to close blood relatives of the person they seek to identify, even though they were not exact matches. To the astonishment of the investigators, the killer's DNA sample showed similarities to that of an elderly male in his 70s, collected back in 2007 due to his arrest for a domestic violence offense. This vital finding turned up at the very last minute. The familial DNA sample was scheduled to be removed from the database and destroyed, as it can be saved for no more than seven years. As mentioned before, the sample was collected in 2007, and when matched, it was 2014, almost seven years to the day. Encouraged by the finding, the investigators delved into the elderly man's backstory and family. They soon found that the man had an estranged son, 38-year-old Daniel Nachmani. Nachmani, born and raised in the remote neighborhood, was married with two daughters and worked as a car electrician in a garage in Jerusalem. Amazingly, Nachmani was well known to the investigators, as he often attended to their cars in the garage and was thought of as friendly and efficient. While looking into him, the investigators discovered that when he was 17, he was indicted for an indecent assault on an 11-year-old girl, and not much later after that, he was arrested and convicted for a similar crime against a 14-year-old girl. It is not clear why Nachmani's name did not come up sooner in the investigation, for example when collecting DNA samples of convicted sex offenders. Perhaps because he was a minor at the time of his crimes, he was given a lighter sentence and not included in the list of convicted sex offenders, and no DNA was ever collected from him. Whatever the case, the police now focused all of their attention on Nachmani. The investigators began following Nachmani's every move. They discovered he led an ordinary, routine life. Every morning he would arrive at the garage where he worked for the past 15 years, finish up at around 5 o'clock, put on his cap and drive back home, where he would spend time with his family, his wife of 14 years, and two young daughters, aged 5 and 11. If this man was indeed the depraved killer they were looking for, his current lifestyle did not disclose that. 
the investigators knew they would need hard evidence to make an arrest. They decided to use a new technology for pinpointing mobile phone signals. This could show the phone's exact location at different times in the past, even going back as far as 1998. The results soon came in. Nachmani's phone was at the Davidka Square on February 22, 1998, at 11.55 p.m., the same time as Noah, on the night of her disappearance. It was now time for the final piece of the puzzle, a DNA sample from Nachmani himself. However, Nachmani was not officially arrested or charged yet, as the police wanted to first build a strong case against him, so any DNA originating from him would have to be collected in a public area. The investigators tailing Nachmani waited for the perfect moment, and after observing him spitting at the side of the road, they hurried to collect the saliva sample and sent it to the lab. Two weeks later, right before Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, the investigators heard back from the lab. Nachmani's DNA was a perfect match to the sample found on Noah's body. The road to Nachmani's arrest was now paved. He was summoned to the police station for questioning. The investigators did not tell him at first that he was the prime suspect, nor reveal any of the evidence against him. They wanted to examine his conduct and see if he makes any mistakes. They asked general questions about the murder and prior encounters he may have had with Noah. Nachmani denied any involvement in the crime, claiming he had never met Noah and had never been to the remote forest. He was then let go, but police kept the tail on him and arranged for his phone to be tapped. They were waiting to see what his next move would be. Nachmani took his time, eventually calling his wife and calmly telling her he stopped by the police station and answered some questions about a girl who disappeared a long time ago. Noah something, he said. His wife didn't ask anything further, and the call ended. The investigators, realizing Nachmani wasn't too rattled and probably wasn't going to slip up, finally decided to arrest him and confront him with the DNA evidence. They seized him while walking on the street and brought him to the station. Nachmani was left in the interrogation room with a glass of water, while investigators observed him through cameras in the next room. Nachmani, wearing a t-shirt with the writing, Have the Last Laugh, was seen slowly drinking the water and upon finishing, carefully wiping off the glass. It was apparent he did not want to leave any DNA traces behind. The investigators then decided it was time to lay all the cards on the table. They confronted Nachmani with all the evidence piled up against him, and asked tough questions about his past crimes and his current sex life. Nachmani did not flinch, and continued to vehemently deny any involvement in the murder. After hours of intense interrogation, he did not break, and it was clear to investigators that a confession would not be attained, and they would be left to fill in the holes in the story for themselves. After a long search, they managed to track down the car that belonged to Nachmani at the time of the murder. 
it quickly became apparent why it was never found. It was not a Ford Escort, as Stern described back in 1998, but a Renault 5, and the license plate number was 443074. The number Stern reported at his first call to the police was very similar, 343075. He had gotten the middle five numbers right. However, the police only regarded his later testimony at the station, where he gave a very different set of numbers. This overlook set the police on the wrong path. Conceivably, if they were to look into Stern's initial call and follow up on the numbers he gave then, Nachmani would have been caught much sooner. Soon after discovering the car, an old girlfriend of Nachmani came forward and told the police that he used to regularly take her to the remote forest, where they would engage in violent sex per his request. When asked if she could remember where exactly in the forest this happened, she described a location right next to where Noah's body was found. Investigators also found that Nachmani's younger sister was in Noah's year at high school and was also in the scouts. Therefore, it is possible that he knew Noah or had seen her around. The investigators now had an almost complete picture of the events of the night of the murder. On the night of February 22, 1998, Nachmani, then 22 years old, had seen Noah waiting at the bus stop at the Davidka Square. He had either recognized her or saw an opportunity and stopped next to her, asking for directions to Ramut. Noah then told him to follow the bus to Ramut, the one she was waiting for. Again, Nachmani approached her, apparently offering her a ride. Noah, possibly because she was afraid she missed the last bus, or because she had recognized Nachmani, agreed to the offer. Nachmani then drove in the direction of Ramot, but once he reached the forest next to the neighborhood, he went off the main road and entered one of the forest paths. There he stopped the car, attacked Noah, possibly hitting her with a large stone, and then raped her while she struggled with him. When he finished, he crushed her skull with a blunt object, and later discarded her clothes and belongings at an unknown location. The noose was now tight around Nachmani's neck. He had prior convictions of pedophilia, had been caught lying to police, could be placed at the scene of Noah's last whereabouts, and most importantly, his DNA matched that found in Noah's body. He was indicted on the 13th of November, 2014, and the trial began soon after. Nachmani's wife, in-laws, and his own parents are said to have given testimony in favor of the prosecution, though what exactly has been said in court has yet to become public knowledge. As of 2018, Nachmani is incarcerated while his trial is coming to a close. He still maintains his innocence. One month before her death, Noah wrote a short essay for a school assignment on the dangers that teenagers face nowadays. Recently, there have been increasing reports of rape, assault, and murder related to hitchhiking. Many girls are brutally raped and sometimes murdered. 
In the slightly nicer cases, the ride ends only with an assault, and the passenger manages to escape and save his or her life. It's easy to think that if we were there, we would not get on that ride, and unfortunately we cannot know how a ride will end. It's a shame to end life in one moment of recklessness. It's too beautiful for that. <laughs>